Under the Cortex is supported by Macmillan Learning Psychology. David Myers, a social psychologist and professor of psychology at Hope College in Michigan, joined us in the last two episodes to speak about his latest book, How Do We Know Ourselves? Curiosities and Marvels of the Human Mind. In the previous episodes, we got to know more about David's career and his goals of helping his readers and students to save the world by thinking critically and to savor the world by developing a sense of wonder and respect for the human creature. We also talked about the two first parts of his book, Who Am I?, which focuses on the self, specifically how do we get to know ourselves, and Who Are We?, which explores our relationships. Today, we invited David Myers to come back to Under the Cortex and speak about the third section of his book, What in the World?, in which he takes a psychological eye to the larger world around us. It's great to have you back, David. Thank you so much, Ludmilla. I've enjoyed being with you. So today we are talking about the third part of your book, What in the World? Specifically, one of the essays, Failure and Flourishing. In this essay, you wrote about how in certain fields, such as academia, only victories are visible and the dangers of not making our failures more visible. Yeah, that is true. I've sometimes said to my college's uh, basketball coaches, The difference between you and me is your victories and defeats are out there for everybody to see. But for us scholars, only our victories are publicized and we only see other people's victories, their announcements of publications and so forth, and not all their failures and rejections. And so actually there's a couple of academics that have suggested that we should have an alternative CV of our rejections. I love one by a neuroscientist named Bradley Wojtek, who at the end of his actually very impressive CV, lists his failed grad school and job applications, all his unsuccessful award and grant applications, the multiple rejections that preceded many of his publications. And it's just uh, kind of heartwarming to think, oh, you too? And so maybe we should be a little more open about how rejection often accompanies success in our vocation. Yes, because even the most successful people have experienced rejection, and they still do. Oh, absolutely. There's a wonderful little book that was published some years ago. It's out of print now. It was entitled Rejection. And it's just a little story, one after the other, of famous works that have achieved acclaim or even Nobel Prizes after repeated rejections. J.K. Rowling, as is famously known, was rejected by loads of publishers. I love the story of the great New Yorker cartoonist, uh, Tom Toro, who finally made the magazine on his 610th try. And then there's the Nobel Prize for Medicine in 2019, which was awarded to Peter Radcliffe for work that Nature magazine had rejected. So uh, there's all kinds of stories, and they're actually kind of encouraging to read. And what's your personal experience? Do you have any striking rejections that if you could, you would share with others? Because we can all learn from these rejections. Sure, I can think of several. I mean, one is I have a trade book that got published uh, after, however, it set an agent's house record for 36 rejections. And so ultimately he gave up and it was published by somebody else. 
Or I think of uh, a time that I submitted an article that was a critique of the gifted education movement and the labeling of children as gifted or not gifted. I sent it to Today's Education, which was the premier education magazine. They rejected it out of hand. So I submitted it to, I think, four other places. They all rejected it. And then I noticed that Today's Education had an all-new editorial board. And I don't know if this was kosher, but now with a co-author and a little revision, I submitted it to them without letting them know they'd already rejected it. They not only accepted the article and published it, they asked for more writing, and it got reprinted in all kinds of education magazines. So that's a story for me where persistence in the face of repeated rejection ultimately paid off. And by the way, teachers have this experience too. I mean, we get student feedback and all of us have been dinged by, I mean, even the best of teachers by really hurting <laughs> comments from students that, I, I mean, we think we're likable, but somehow just don't like us. I know, I've experienced those. <laughs> I've had, for the same course, glowing reviews and really bad reviews. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, uh, John Gottman, the marriage researcher, says it takes a five-to-one ratio of praise and compliments to criticism to sustain a, a good relationship, a good marriage. And I sort of think that to sustain the morale of teachers, it takes at least a five-to-one ratio of praise to criticism because one stinging student criticism is about the emotional equal of five student compliments. I agree. Those hurt. Those really bad reviews really hurt. But this makes me think of something that I think it's also important, which is even if we are giving a negative review, if we are rejecting something, for example, we are reviewing an article and it's not up to the standards of that journal, it's not up to our standards, still, we can be kind when we are rejecting someone or giving a bad review. You know, that's absolutely true. And most people have been very kind, I must say. I mean, most of my colleagues in their reviews are very helpful in their criticism. One of the worst reviews I've ever received, he, he said it read like an undergraduate term paper. I nevertheless learned some things from him because he did offer some useful criticism. And so, as is my custom, I wrote him a letter of thanks for the criticism because it was valuable to me. It helped make it better. And would you know, he adopted the book and was a longtime user of it. Now, did that just mean he, as bad as he thought it was? Or he thought it was not as bad as all the others? I mean, I don't know. Some people just have a more negative, critical style of evaluating work, of course. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it makes a difference. And by the way, when I share this with other faculty, it always encourages them to know that they're not alone. That's true. Being more open about the review process, about rejections, would probably help everybody in the field. Because after a rejection, there's a series of reactions that we go through after a failure, right? And this is a bit like the cycle of grief. Yeah, you know, that reminds me of one of the quotes from Benton Underwood that I use in this new little book of essays. Benton Underwood, by the way, was the great memory researcher from the last century. The rejection of my own manuscripts has a sordid aftermath. One day of depression, one day of utter contempt for the editor and his accomplices, one day of decrying the conspiracy against letting truth be published, one day of fretful ideas about changing my profession, one day of reevaluating the manuscript in view of the editor's comments, followed by the conclusion that 
I was lucky it wasn't accepted. Uh, and that's been in a small measure in my own experience too, of suffering through critical reviews. It's not pleasant to work through them, but at the end of the day, I'm so grateful for them. That's true. I've, I, I've experienced exactly the same aftermath of rejection. What's funny is that I clearly remember the first article that I submitted somewhere with a co-author, and I clearly remember that rejection so well and how I felt. After that, it happened so many times that I don't have such vivid memories. You know, what happens, the, the initial rejections we receive sting the most, and in my case would cause me to think about maybe I should go back into the family insurance business like my father uh, was inviting me to do. And the initial acceptances and words of praise inflated my ego the most. But over time, as we accumulate a mountain of feedback, both praise and criticism, the power of praise to explode our minds, our heads, and the power of criticism to utterly deflate us and keep us awake at night diminishes. But either way, we can learn from failure. And the last essay in your book is actually about failures too, but a different type of failures. So in the last decade, the field of psychological science has seen some of its most famous effects failing to replicate. Uh, and what this means is that when different researchers attempted to do the exact same experiments done in the past, they did not obtain the same effects as previously. Now, what can we do with this information? This has been called a replication crisis, and some people started distrusting the science. So the title of your essay is Do Replication Failures Discredit Psychological Science? And spoiler alert, you don't think so, neither do I. But let's talk about what these failures to replicate might mean for the field in general. Sure. So first, I think you're quite right that there has been some crisis of morale. And it's come as a result, uh, in part, of some famous researchers actually faking data. And so there was a lack of integrity. I, I think of greater concern is a lot of popular psychological results, like supposed brain training for older folks, or teaching to learning styles, or uh, even implicit bias training programs have been found just not to be effective as people have proposed or declared. And then we have research phenomena like the effects of teacher expectations or power posing or willpower depletion or stereotype threat, growth mindset benefits. Even the marshmallow test has come under criticism as maybe only partially replicable, you know, as a more modest phenomenon than has been claimed. And so all this builds up and people become cynical sometimes. Students read this and they say, it's all a bunch of malarkey, study neuroscience. And so that's, that's the crisis that we've lived with is these occasional fake data, some questions about famous experiments and other phenomena that have been modestly replicable, sometimes yes, sometimes not. But I would say that when researchers are faking data, that's a completely different issue. Yeah, and that's a very small part of the problem. Yes, I think that's what led other researchers to start investigating and being interested in replications and trying to show if the effects are there or not. 
Sure, and the whole open science movement with pre-registering data and methods and everything is shoring up the integrity of the scientific process. And, and that's a good outcome of this questioning of psychological science is that uh, researchers are more and more concerned with being open and transparent about their practices, with sharing their materials, sharing their data, which leads to a lot of collaborations and enriches the field, I would say. Absolutely. And we also need to, to know that the ups and downs of science is how science works. It's a self-checking, self-replicating enterprise. It's like mountain climbing. It's an upward march that comes with occasional downslopes. And so we should expect things, some things to replicate and some things not to replicate. And as a text author, I mean, I mean, we try to winnow the pile and report on what is truly a human phenomenon that, that applies consistently and powerfully enough to be worth knowing about. Mm-hmm. But even the effects that fail to replicate, they probably at some point push the science forward, push the field forward. Yeah, absolutely. So that there are phenomena that are genuine, but they're more situation-specific. So in some situations, they replicate, in some not. In our first podcast, I mentioned the facial feedback effect, the happy pen in the teeth versus the pouting pen in the lips effect. Well, there's some studies that found that that effect didn't replicate. But it turned out it does replicate if you do it the way the experiment was done. Many of the replications put a video camera on people that made them self-conscious and distracted their attention. Those experiments didn't replicate. And so, you know, we, we now have actually several hundred phenomena that have been, where there have been attempts to replicate, and a majority of them have replicated, but a fair number of them haven't. I should say, on behalf of textbook authors, that what we're reporting on is mostly research that has been solidly replicated. I, in response to, I think there were like, there was an initial report of 100 replication attempts with 65 or so didn't replicate. Uh, I think that affected one sentence in my textbook, and I bet that was true for other introductory text authors as well. Because we can still speak of general effects in psychological science, right? Oh, absolutely. And if, I, if you'd indulge me just to read one long paragraph from this book. It's one of my favorite paragraphs, and it's the last paragraph in the book. Uh, What endures and is left to teach is everything else. Memories really are malleable. Expectations really do influence our perceptions. Information really does occur on two tracks, implicit and explicit. Partial reinforcement really does increase resistance to extinction. Human traits really are influenced by many genes having small effects. Group polarization really does amplify our group differences. In-group bias really is powerful and perilous. I'll stop there. I mean, I could go on. I mean, I go on with as many more examples. So the bottom line here is let's teach the importance of replication for winnowing truth. Let's separate the wheat from the chaff and encourage critical thinking, encourage healthy skepticism, but not science-scorning cynicism. We can be skeptics without becoming cynics. And let's be reassured as psychology students and psychology researchers that our evidence-derived principles of behavior 
are really truly overwhelmingly worth teaching and they help us and our students appreciate a, a truly wonder-filled world. And that's what animates this little book. This is Ludmila Nunes with APS and I've been speaking to David Myers, author of the book How Do We Know Ourselves? Curiosities and Marvels of the Human Mind. Thank you, Ludmila. It's been a great pleasure to be with you. It's never been a more exciting time to join APS. APS membership gives you free access to a growing number of webinars and virtual events to help you advance your career, exclusive opportunities to contribute and share your science, reduced registration rates for two scientific conferences, and so much more. Ready to join a community dedicated to advancing scientific psychology? Visit member.psychologicalscience.org to learn more. Macmillan Learning's Achieve for Psychology sets a whole new standard for integrating assessments, activities, and analytics into your teaching. One way Achieve does this is through new goal setting and reflection surveys. Pre-built and easy to assign, these surveys help students define and attain their own personal goals for the class, while giving instructors insight into each student's academic skills and emotional well-being. The goal setting and reflection surveys are just one tool in Achieve's suite of reports and insights, and another example of how Achieve goes well beyond just delivering first-rate class-to-class course materials. For a preview of Achieve for Psychology, go to macmillanlearning.com forward slash psych sessions.